Welcome in to another episode of the Esports Network podcast, presented, of course, by Esports Network. Today, I'm talking about investing in esports, and to do that, I am joined by Joey Brander, the president of First Serve Partners. Joey, how are you doing today, man? Good. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. It's a sunny day in Oregon right now, and that's all you can ask for, really. Awesome. No, happy to hear it. So First Serve Partners is an investment, a venture capital firm, and they have investments in Splice and Overactive Media, which gives them teams in all three of the major franchised esports leagues, League of Legends, Call of Duty, and Overwatch. So this conversation, we're going to be talking about investing in esports, uh, some of the struggles of monetizing esports organizations and how that hopes to improve in the future, and the future of the franchised esports league as First Serve Partners is very active in the franchised esports leagues. So we're going to be talking about you know, the benefits of that, the upcoming move to regionalization in esports and Call of Duty and Overwatch, and just a whole lot more. So I'm really excited to get into this, uh, this podcast. But Joey, I wanted to start a bit broad and exp- have you explain what FSP does. So what's your mission statement? What do you guys do? Yeah, so uh, FSP is a venture capital firm. We're based in Miami, um, and we invest across sports, media, entertainment, and consumer. Uh, We love to invest in things that have young people in mind as their target or core demographic, uh, esports, of course, being one of those things. Uh, Quite a few of our investors, advisors, partners are current and former pro athletes. Uh, So we love to find ways for them to be actively involved in the deals that we do, bringing their cachet, their large fan bases, social media followings, industry expertise, all of those different things. And, um, you know, esports has been something that we've been very interested in over the past couple of years. And um, it's been exciting to see, you know, all of the growth and development in the space. It, it, you know, feels like a decade worth of growth that's happened just in the past, you know, one to two years. So, uh, a lot of interesting things happening in the space and, and you know, something that, that we've invested pretty heavily in thus far. Very cool. Yeah, the esports growth rate is just absolutely absurd. I'm really curious about those conversations you have with athlete investors. Are they in on esports from the go or do you sort of have to convince them and show them the opportunity? Where are traditional sports athletes and ex-athletes at in the esports space? Yeah, I'd say it's a mixture of the two. Um, you know, it, it is uh, easy for athletes to relate to and understand esports just because of its similarities to traditional sports. I mean, structurally at the base level, esports is, uh, you know, athletes who are the best in the world at what they do, competing against each other at the highest level. There are leagues, there are franchises in these leagues, which are monetized in many of the same ways that traditional sports franchises are. Uh, contract structures with players are becoming, uh, you know, more and more similar to that of traditional sports, uh, as are the events and league structures and, and everything like that. So, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, one of our former NFL player uh, investors mentioned to us when we were first uh, studying the esports space and and some of the early deals that we did in particular was. Uh, you know, he said to us, hey, when I was playing over the course of my 10 or 11 year career, my dream was always to own an NFL franchise. Obviously, that's something that's incredibly difficult to do. But, you know, this is uh, the closest that that he's felt he can get to owning a 
you know, professional sports franchise because that's what it is. Uh, so uh, on that side of things, it's very easy, you know, for them to relate to the leagues, the owners, the players, the sponsors, the networks and broadcast partners and everything else. Um, I think that just like the mainstream audience in general, especially the mainstream sports audience, there was definitely some catching up to do in terms of what's happening uh, in the esports landscape. And I think a lot of those questions are answered by getting them out to events. And that's something that, you know, the very first thing that we did when we first started looking into the esports space is uh, Marty, the founder of Splice, said, hey, you got to come and check out an event and invited us to an event that was at the Barclays Center. This was two years ago now, a, a Counter-Strike tournament, I believe it was. And, you know, went there and saw the thousands of passionate fans that were wearing team apparel that were, uh, you know, uh, cheering and screaming and crying. And you know, just like you would see at any traditional sporting event for their favorite athletes and teams on stage, you know, I went up to some of them and asked them who their favorite player is, who their favorite team is and why. And their responses were the same as if you were to ask me growing up, you know, why I was a Lakers fan and why Kobe Bryant was my favorite player. Where was he from? Where did he go to high school? What are his stats? You know, they are so personally and emotionally invested in the space and, and in their teams and players. And I think that once we got uh, some of our athlete investors out to the events and they could see it and feel it, understand it, um, you know, it, it's very clear for everyone to see that um, this growth is not for no reason. Uh, you know, it's not uh, it, this is a real thing. And this is a major part of the the professional sports landscape now. And, and you know, it's going to continue to be and continue to grow for years to come. Yeah, I absolutely agree that the most important thing you can do is get people to an actual esports event, because then any preconceived notions you might have about esports, who's playing these games, who's watching these games, evaporates in minutes, as you see that it's a young crowd, but just a normal group of people who are huge fans and very passionate. And it's very similar to a traditional sporting atmosphere. It's just a younger crowd and a crowd that you might not actually see in a lot of traditional sports venues. Without a doubt, and, and an experience that is, you know, I, I always like to say, and, and this is going back to my uh, you know, previous days working in the media world, that at the end of the day, sports are another form of entertainment. You know, sports are professional sports teams and leagues are trying to find ways for you to say, listen, I'm going to devote this amount of my, you know, mind share to the NBA rather than going to see this movie or watch this TV show or do anything else. You know, it's a form of entertainment that's looking to engage fans. And, uh, you know, esports is, is the same way, but a professional sport that brings in, I think, more aspects of the entertainment world than a lot of other professional sports are able to. And that's solely because of the fact that it is digital in nature and they're able to add, you know, a lot of cool interactive things to their game day experience that other uh, leagues or sports may not necessarily be able to. So you're right. I mean, the, the event experience itself is very similar to that of professional sports, but I think even further enhanced by some of the interesting things that they're, uh, they're able to do to engage their fans, interest their fans and, and everything else. Yeah, there are definitely more options in the digital realm, the digital arena. You mentioned your background in entertainment and sports, so I feel like now is a great time to bring up the fact that you worked for the Entertainment and Sports Programming Network, of course, better known as ESPN. What was that experience like? You were the youngest ever ESPN radio host, is that correct? 
Yeah, you know, working for ESPN was um, a, a dream come true at the time. You know, when I was growing up, um, when I was four years old, for whatever reason, I decided that I wanted to to work in the sports industry and and you know initially work in sports media. Um, you know, I remember uh, in kindergarten going around the circle and and saying even at that point that that's what I wanted to do. And uh, you know, my parents got me this. Uh, old cassette tape recorder that I used to carry around with me because I assumed I would see professional athletes or celebrities everywhere I went, which is of course a logical thought at four years old. And, um, you know, I, it was always my dream and my passion to work, um, you know, among the best and with the best. And, um, you know, specifically when I was growing up, Stuart Scott was my, my first real hero, the first guy that I really looked up to. And, um, I ended up uh, having the opportunity to, to get to know uh, Stuart before, um, you know, unfortunately he passed away. And, um, you know, I remember, uh, you know, just asking him advice and feedback and wanting to follow in his footsteps and, um, you know, being able to host a show on, you know, an ESPN radio affiliate um, and, and, you know, work with, uh, you know, ESPN and Disney in a variety of capacities was, like I said, a, a, a dream come true. Um and with that, I still remember um, the the right after uh, you know agreeing to, to terms to host my ESPN radio show, I saw uh, Stuart Scott out at the Gatorade Awards in LA the day before the ESPY Awards, and I remember going up to him and telling him uh, you know about the news. I was so excited to tell him that I was going to be working with ESPN. I and I specifically told him I said, hey, you know, maybe I'm on my way to becoming uh, the next Stuart Scott. And he looked at me and, and congratulated me and said that that was great, but said, uh, no, you're not. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, you're on your way to becoming the first Joey Brander. And that's something that's much more important. That's something that's much more impactful um, than becoming the second or the next of someone else. And that's you know a piece of advice that has always stuck out to me this day. And I think a lot of, uh, or that impacted you know, the rest of my journey to this point in, in many ways as I tried to find new and innovative ways to, you know, shape the industries that I am passionate about in sports, media, entertainment, um, you know, now with, with our work at FSP, finding ways to invest in other uh, individuals, entrepreneurs, thought leaders that are disrupting those industries and, and you know, changing them for the better. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I, you know, really enjoyed all of my time with ESPN, with, with Disney, with, uh, you know, their, their family of networks. Um, it was a phenomenal experience. That's really interesting. You had an experience that sounds very similar to mine. Actually, I was always a sports media kid, hence the esports podcast and esports writing. And my idol was Neil Everett. So I had a, you know, similar, they had similar spots in the sports center primetime. And one time I talked to Neil and he said, something very similar. I was like, I really want to do what you do. How do I do that? And he's like, you don't want to do what I do. You need to make your own path. And that was really impactful lesson to get. So it's interesting that apparently that's the the sports center anchors really have that bit of knowledge for, for young aspiring sports media kids. Without a doubt. And I think that that's, um, you know, exceptional advice and, and, you know, still holds true and that, you know, some of those guys that you talked about, whether it's a Stuart Scott or a Neil Everett or any of the other, um, you know, transcendent media personalities that we've seen, the reason that they were so transcendent is because they carved their own lane. They found their own style, their own personality, their own, um, you know, method of doing things that was unique and different and special and interesting. And, you know, we're able to do that, 
um, you know, at the highest possible level. And I think that's something that um, is important in all fields, you know, regardless of what your career choice is. Uh, I think the people that are able to, one, learn as much as possible about what some of the best to ever do it have done, how they did it, why they did it, the work that they put in um, is incredibly important. And, and using that kind of historical precedent uh, to forge your own path is, you know, how you become one of the best in the world at what you do. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I still try and follow that advice as, as much as I can. Yeah, I absolutely agree. How did you go from being in the sports media world to now being an investor like that? It's definitely a switch. When did that transition begin? And then how is it, how has it taken shape over the years? Yeah, I, I think that, um, I had quite a bit of very unique experience having worked uh, in the sports industry from such a young age. I mean, starting out at, you know, nine or 10 years old with Disney Channel and then with CBS and with ESPN and with, you know, a host of other networks. And then um, after um, uh, leaving uh, ESPN and, and the radio show that I was doing, I worked with a lot of the influencers and athletes that I was close with helping them. Uh, build their off-court or off-field brands and businesses, you know, helping them uh, source deals to angel invest, helping them create, you know, interesting original content, uh, you know, just helping them uh, and working with them on, you know, building all the things that are pretty commonplace for athletes to build nowadays off the quarter field. And I think always had an interest in uh, that world. I uh, had a lot of friends that, uh, you know, had worked on some fascinating projects in the startup world, both on the East Coast and in the West Coast out in Silicon Valley, and uh, kind of always had a passion in that and also for innovating on, like I said, the industries that I was passionate about. Even when I was hosting my shows, I always tried to find a unique or different approach to, you know, innovate or do something new that hadn't been done uh, before in, you know, at that point, the sports media world. And uh, I also had a lot of uh, relationships with influential individuals in those industries, both from the athlete and influencer level to, you know, media executives, sports executives, entertainment executives, people that had been there and done that and seen a lot of the trends that have shaped the industries up to that point and, and just wanted to find a way to bring all of that together and, um, you know, invest in people that were building interesting products or, or doing interesting things and, um you know, I, I always kind of had a bit of a chip on my shoulder as well, because I felt like starting at such a young age in the media industry, I was always second guessed. I was always doubted. I was always kind of, you know, pushed to the back of the line because I was so much younger than everyone else. But I knew that I had worked incredibly hard and was, you know, more than prepared, more than capable of, you know, standing toe to toe. I felt at least with any other personality or host or anchor or whatever it may be out there. Um, and, you know, I wanted to use my experience to invest in and give resources, advice, experience, relationships to other people that were, you know, kind of forging their own path and, and, you know, disrupting these industries and, you know, maybe doubted themselves. Um, so you know, I thought that the venture world would be a great way to bring all of those people together, bring all of that experience together. Um, and I joined forces with my, uh, my, my co-founder, Waylon Chin, who's a former professional tennis player. Uh, who was the number one ranked player in the United States. And and he was a successful startup founder and angel investor and um, had kind of been exposed to the sports industry throughout his life from a young age as well. And then we you know brought a couple other uh, people on board and, and kind of went from there. Um, and it's been 
great ever since. I mean, I, I, you know, truly love and, and am passionate about what we do and, and, you know, like the fact that we are able to shape the future of sports media and entertainment from this side of the table. Yeah, it definitely seems like a sort of a natural, when you explain it like that, it's like, oh, those are very different areas, but it does seem more natural as you actually explain the connection. You've met all these different people. You want to work with these people. And this is the best way of joining them all under one roof and still being able to touch on a wide variety of industries and topics through investing, something that is one of the main draws of being in sports media is covering a wide range of different things. Well, you can sort of do that in venture capital as well, in investing in different areas, different sectors, learning about a whole host of different things. So is that one of the draws for you to do venture capital, like really have this broad net that you're still working under? Without a doubt, I mean it's uh, it's a combination of a lot of things. Obviously, we have a very specific core focus in terms of the industries that we invest in. But with that said, when you're talking about early stage investing, uh, everybody's going to wear a lot of hats. You know, founders of early stage companies are going to be uh, trying to solve problems that um, you know they may not have had experience solving before, and and you know that's why we like to one invest early stage and two invest in companies where we can be actively involved and, you know, connect the right people with the right ideas, as we like to say, um, bringing some of the experience that we have, that our team has, that our advisors or investors have, and trying to add as much value to the founders we invest in as possible, bring as much knowledge as possible, uh, experience as possible to the table and, and, you know, help them solve those problems to allow them to grow and scale and, you know, fulfill the potential that, that we obviously see in them. So it's, um, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, nothing more fun than kind of getting in the trenches with the, the founders that we've invested in that are so incredibly passionate about what they're doing and, you know, kind of diving in head first and, uh, you know, helping them uh, do it and fulfill the vision and thesis that, that they've set forth. Absolutely. It's really interesting to me. I think I could talk about the investment world all day. The venture capital world is just very interesting to me. But I want to circle back over to esports. Obviously, this is the Esports Network podcast. You came from a traditional sports background. Same with me. I was in the sports broadcasting program. Do you remember the first time you were introduced to the world of esports? What were your initial reactions and how have they changed over the years as you've seen the industry grow? Yeah, I, I I can't remember the very first time I was uh, introduced to the space. Obviously, you know, just through our kind of relationships and exposure in, um, you know, early stage companies, uh, you know, across sports media and entertainment, we had heard a lot about what was happening in esports from a variety of different sources. But um, the first time that I really was exposed to it in detail was uh, I, I was invited to moderate a sports versus esports panel at a university in New York. This was probably two years ago now, uh, maybe a little more actually, probably maybe going on three years ago. And um, was there, and there were a couple of esports executives on the panel, a couple of traditional sports executives on the panel, and I was kind of, you know, moderating between both sides, illuminating similarities, differences, you know, sparking hopefully interesting conversation between the two sides about what esports can learn from traditional sports and vice versa, and. Um, you know, that was a fascinating and, uh, you know, perspective changing, mind opening conversation 
uh, for me, I, I you know, remember calling my partners right after that and, and sharing some of the information that I had even learned, uh, you know, from the other brilliant minds sitting at the table. And, um, you know, after that, as I mentioned, went to that first esports event in, in New York, which was um, incredibly interesting just to see firsthand what it was all about. Uh, see how passionate the fans were, see, you know, the lights, the cameras and the action, as they say, of an esports event, uh, the incredible production quality of an esports event, the sponsors involved, the, um, I mean, it, it just uh, everything across the board. And, and, you know, from there, we've tried to be as uh, actively involved in the esports space as possible. You know, we've tried to form relationships with and get to know as many of the major players in the space as we can and, uh, you know, just ingrain ourselves within esports as, as, you know, to the best of our abilities. And uh, it, it's been uh, incredibly interesting to continue to learn and see firsthand. Uh, you know, I, I feel like it's almost like being, uh, you know, working with the NBA a couple of decades ago when they were going through their renaissance. You know, the NBA had their games on tape delay. It was, uh, you know, not incredibly popular from a mainstream perspective. And then you had a couple of major stars enter into the league and, and uh, you know, all of a sudden it's one of the biggest leagues, one of the fastest growing leagues in the world. And I feel like we're experiencing something similar, but also different in esports. You know, it's a, esports has been around I think, longer than people think, but has uh, seen unprecedented growth over the past couple of years, similar to some of those other leagues that I, I mentioned to the point where it's now entering into mainstream, not only just sports, but just mainstream in general um, discussion. And yeah, just being on the ground and witnessing that firsthand is, uh, has, has been a phenomenal experience. Yeah. The last couple of years have been absolutely insane for esports. Just a, a quick run through, you had all the major American sports leagues uh, either double down or create new esports initiatives in the NBA 2K League, the NHL Challenge, the Madden Club Championship, and the FIFA something. Um, FIFA is actually the biggest one of all those. I should know that one. But that that happened in the last two to three years. You have the Overwatch League being founded and moving to a regionalization structure, which is a huge and important move in esports you have riot games moving towards a franchised structure you have these massive massive entry prize or uh slots in these leagues going for 20 million in the first year of the overwatch league then all the way up to 40 million in the second year for an expansion team so that's just an idea of that growth that joey is talking about that's happened over just the last couple of years yeah, um, I think the, the the boom and the um, you know launch of these franchise leagues is probably the most impactful thing to happen in esports thus far. Uh, you know, when we first started looking at the space, we saw that popularity and interest in esports was incredibly high. The viewership numbers were incredibly high. Attendance numbers were incredibly high. They were selling out. Uh, some of the largest and most well-respected venues, both in North America and around the world, having tens of thousands of people, you know, buy tickets and come out to the events. Uh, and uh, the the biggest issue, I guess, from an investor's perspective, was the monetization gap of you know viewership and attendance and interest was incredibly high, but um, 
esports organizations, teams, leagues hadn't quite figured out yet how they monetize that fan base. And I think that the franchise model is, you know, the best way to do that. I think learning from what we've seen in traditional sports, having those, you know, league wide revenue shared television contracts, digital broadcast contracts, merchandise, ticket sales, sponsorship deals league wide. Um, you know, IP that is unique to esports, like in-game purchases and skins and things like that, um, I think allows esports teams and organizations to close that monetization gap. Uh, I also think the that the franchise home and away model makes a lot of sense because there are a lot of passionate esports fans in cities all over the world who, you know, want to see the best players in the world compete at the highest level right there in their their own backyard. So I like, you know, Overwatch League, Call of Duty, moving to that home and away franchise model where, you know, kids and their families will grow up with their favorite team, you know, going out and watching them compete just like, you know, we did in traditional sports. I grew up in South Florida and, you know, some of my best memories come from going with family or friends and watching the, you know, Miami Heat or a Dolphin game or a Panther game or, or whatever it may be, um, you know, growing up wearing the jerseys and supporting the players and teams and everything like that. So, um, you know, I like that, that, you know, you will have that opportunity now in esports as well. And then that also opens up local revenue, like local television deals, which have been incredibly fruitful for traditional sports leagues, local uh, sponsorship deals, local ticket sales and concessions and, and all of those different things. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's, you know, one of the most impactful changes that we've seen in the esports landscape. And, and I think that the growth of those leagues will only, you know, continue to thrive. You know, we're incredibly bullish on the state of the Overwatch League, uh, you know, the, the forthcoming franchise Call of Duty, uh, Global League and, and League of Legends as well. Um, and, and think that they're doing a tremendous job. You know, the viewership numbers are up year over year. Sponsorship dollars are up year over year. Attendance is up year over year. Some of the Overwatch League homestead, homestand events were incredibly well attended and marketed. Uh, so we're excited to see what's to come, uh, you know, over the next couple of, of years as these leagues continue to grow and thrive and prosper. And, and, you know, I'm excited to see all the fans come out in cities around the world uh, for Overwatch and for Call of Duty, their homestand events, their home and away uh, scheduling starting next year. Yeah, I've been telling anybody who will listen that 2020 is the most important year esports has ever had. And it is largely because of Overwatch League moving to that and of the new Call of Duty League moving to these new structures. And if that is successful, you mentioned all those different monetization avenues that open up if those are successful. And that's just if that works, then it becomes like traditional sports. Esports finally, and there's obviously some key differences, but if they can move to a home and away model into a franchise league model and this transitionary year goes well. And, and it already is, you know, I mean the, yeah, the overwatch league is, is, you know, two seasons in now and you see, you know, a, a double digit million dollar per year broadcast deal, digital broadcast deal with Twitch. You see, you know, a traditional broadcast deal with ABC, ESPN and Disney. So fans can watch, uh, you know, those games uh, around the country at home. Uh, you see, you know, merchandise sales, in-game purchases. You see the initial homestand weekends incredibly well attended. I think it was like 4,500 fans in Dallas, uh, you know, came out for, for that homestand weekend. 
Um, you know, you're already seeing it uh, working, and and you know, I think that you're going to continue to to see it to work and grow, especially now, like you said, with uh, the home and away model for all of the teams next year. You know, teams each hosting a minimum of two home stands. Uh, you know, I think that a lot of people are going to be very pleasantly surprised and impressed with how large the esports fan base is in cities around the world. Speaking of cities. You're from South Florida, but your teams are both based in Toronto, the Toronto Defiant and the new Toronto Call of Duty team. Is there is there a name for that yet or just the Toronto Call of Duty spot? Yeah, I mean, we can't, um, you know, speak on, on anything related to uh, that. Um, you know, as you said, you know, we as, as FSP are investors in Splice initially and then in Overactive Media as well. Um, you know, the, the overactive guys are doing an incredible job, uh, uh, you know, running uh, the and, and operating these uh, esports teams and organizations across the different leagues. You know, we think that their team is just one of the best in the business, you know, from a management and executive level. And we're so incredibly impressed and proud of the work that they've done. Um, and, I, you know, we're excited to see just like all of you guys are, uh, you know, what the, the name and branding will look like for the, the Call of Duty team and, and, you know, how our teams will continue to compete and, and you know, how the uh, really passionate Toronto esports fan base will continue to support these teams as uh, they come home next year. Yeah, and so that home in Toronto was just named a couple of days ago, and you settled on the Roy Thompson Hall, the home of the Toronto Symphony, seating of about 2,600, I believe, if I, if I remember correctly. What made that venue, what, what are you looking for in a venue for these homestand weekends? What, what were you hoping to accomplish, and why was this hall the right fit? Yeah, again, you know, I can't really speak on on those related things. I mean, that decision was, you know, in the hands of uh, Overactive and, and their team. Uh, you know, we at, at FSP, um, you know, love what they're doing, as I said, and, and think that that's a beautiful venue. I, I have not been there myself, but just from the pictures and some of the articles I've read, it seems like a just absolutely aesthetically beautiful venue that should provide for um, a, a second to none, you know, in-game or game day experience for the the fans, um, and I'm excited to, to head up there uh, next season and, and you know see our team play in, in our home city and see all the fans come out. So um, yeah, I mean we're we're really excited not only for that but for you know all of the venues across the league. I think there's a lot of uh, really interesting choices being made at a variety of different sizes and shapes and capacities and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it goes, it runs the whole gamut from the Fusion Stadium that's $50 million being created by Comcast to uh, the new park in Shanghai that was like $700 million invested that will be the home of the Shanghai Dragons eventually. And then to just other places that I think are still renting or still trying to figure out their venue accommodations. They're getting the homestand weekends done now. The original Overwatch League plan was to move to a full home and away in 2020. This transitionary year feels like a good compromise before you just jump into the deep end with a full home and away. Uh, so I'm happy to see they did that, considering the homestand weekends had success this year. How do you see esports stadiums developing? Are we going to get to a point where they resemble traditional sports arenas, or are they always going to be housed in some more smaller intimate venues as we've seen in the past they do sell out big arenas 
for championship events, but most Overwatch League games played in LA are in a, a relatively small, you know, 3,000, 4,000 seat venue. Is that the kind of esports venue you think we see, or do we eventually reach a point where they're in traditional sports size stadiums? I do. I, I mean, I think that the, you know, that will continue to grow. I, I, there was a stat that I read a couple of years ago that was something like out of the total gaming, um, you know, uh, audience out of the total, uh, you know, number of, of gamers around the world, that there's still a relatively small percentage of them uh, that are, you know, familiar with esports or have watched esports in the past. Uh, I think it was a single digit percentage of the total, uh, you know, number of gamers around the world that are, you know, exposed to esports. So I think that the, you know, global esports fan base will continue to grow. I know that Golden Sachs predicted last year that, uh, you know, it will reach or, or surpass NFL viewership by like 2022 or 2023. Um, so I think that as the esports fan base continues to grow, as more and more people are exposed to esports and, you know, find how exciting it is, how, you know, tension filled it is, how, uh, you know, incredible of a game day experience it is, uh, you know, they'll want to go with their friends, their family, their kids, their brothers and sisters, whoever it may be, and, and you know, go out to the stadium and support their local teams and see the best players in the world compete. Um, and I think that, you know, the stadiums will continue to grow as well. I think that they'll always be a bit different because of the fact that, you know, there is so much more that can be done within the stadium itself in terms of production, in terms of, you know, audio and video, you know, different ways to engage fans that are just inherent to esports. So I think that the arenas will always be very, you know, technologically advanced, very fan friendly, very engaging with different, you know, activations or opportunities for fans to have a good time at the stadium. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely think that we'll continue to see, you know, seating capacities in particular grow, just like you're seeing attendance grow at, you know, events and arenas all around the world. Definitely. We've talked about a lot of the benefits of regionalization in esports and moving to this new format. What are some of the drawbacks? We've Esports has been around since the 90s in some form or another, never at anything like it is today. But it's never moved to regionalization until this point. Why do you think that is, and what are some of the inherent drawbacks and potential negatives for esports organizations as they move towards a regionalization model? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call them drawbacks or negatives. I think that, you know, this is certainly the best thing for esports, and, and as we've seen in traditional sports as well. Obviously, with esports being so globally popular and with these leagues being global leagues, there's, there's always logistical concerns where, you know, it's, it's difficult as it is for the Golden State Warriors to go and, you know, play the Miami Heat. Uh, you know, it's it's a long flight and it's a lot of travel for the players. And, you know, that is is multiplied even more when you talk about a global league where you have teams in Europe, in Asia, in North America, um, all competing in the same league. So there's that, you know, kind of logistical difficulty, uh, which is obviously something that's easily fixable, uh, you know, from a scheduling pro process or, or, you know, made as easy as possible. Um, so that's one thing that, you know, is, is, has not been done before in terms of a major global sports league, but, you know, all in all, I think that this is a, a phenomenal shift for esports, And I think it just took esports getting to that inflection point of popularity where, you know, the fan base had grown enough where there were, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of esports fans in cities all around the world that were calling for professional esports in their home city or their hometown. And, 
uh, you know, now they have that there for them. And, you know, they'll be able to go out and see their favorite teams and players and, and uh, you know, see the, the leagues that they're so passionate about in person. So, uh, you know, I'm really excited to see how, um, you know, that continues to grow. And, and as I said, I, I think that, um, you know, those that are, are may not necessarily be as familiar with the shift that's happening in esports will be uh, incredibly impressed when they see the quality of the events uh, around the world and, and the attendance and interest, coverage, sponsorship, uh, and, and on and on for these events. Yeah, I do think any any drawbacks are immediately offset by having people be able to actually attend esports events. I mean, you're right. Most gamers haven't attended an esports event just because there haven't been a lot of them, unless you live in LA or New York or some Texas cities, places that have brought in esports competitions. It's hard to get to an event. Sometimes there's maybe one event up in Seattle. Well, I guess Dota 2's TI was there for a long time, but you know, there's, it's hard to get to an event, and this regionalization will make it way more accessible for people to watch their first esports event in person, which I think is the first and most important moment in making a true esports fan. Sure, I completely but, agree, and it, it just comes down to that exposure. That's one thing that I think the Fortnite, uh, you know, World Championships did very well. Uh, just, just as an example, is they took a an incredibly mainstream, popular game and and put it in a phenomenal venue in New York. It had a lot of media coverage and and you know a well run event in production, and uh, you know were covered on media outlets, big and small, all around the world, and. Uh, like it all comes down to exposure. I think as people start to familiarize themselves with esports, they will fall in love with it, just like we did, and just like so many others. Have. Yeah, absolutely. And the Fortnite, I, I hope the next World Cup is decent. But based on what's going around in the game right now, it, if they can follow their current trajectory, Fortnite esports may not be a thing uh, by next year. It'll still be around, but they are. The pros in that scene are not happy coming off the heels of a $30 million tournament, and that's honestly kind of impressive to do. But that's a different conversation for a different time. I had one last thing I wanted to ask you about, and it's about some of the tensions in esports right now. There's a little bit of an old guard versus new money thing that's happening in esports as there's people who have been around in this space. Uh, Marty from Splice is a great example of somebody who's been in this space for a long time and helped it grow. And then recently, we've seen a lot of the old sports money enter esports. You have Kronky, who actually was very close to taking Overactive's uh, only organization with three franchise teams. They, if their uh, sale of the LCS team for Echo Fox went through. They would have also had three franchise teams in all the three major leagues. Um, but you have Robert Kraft, you have the Wilpons, you have a lot of this really old sports money entering esports. And there's a there's a general feeling that it's pricing out some of the old esports organizations. And you see that a lot in the Call of Duty League. We have nine teams announced for the new league, but we're yeah. still missing... Uh, really big names, the names that have driven the Call of Duty scene for a long time. FaZe Clan, 100 Thieves, uh, E United, those kind of teams yep. that have these built-in fan bases. Is that going to be a point of tension in the next Call of Duty season? As there's, if these teams don't get involved in some way, 
is it going to be a little bit of a rocky road? Yeah, I, I don't think so. You know, I think that, um, you know, there are a, a lot of uh, e- uh, many esports fans are, are, you know, longtime esports fans that, you know, want to uphold some of the traditions of esports, which I think the leagues are, you know, doing, having some of the major personalities, owners, founders, players involved in a, in a myriad of different capacities. And, you know, with that said as well, as esports continues to grow, we love the fact that some of the, you know, fellow investors or ownership groups in these leagues are the people who understand sports, how to monetize sports, how to run franchises, how to run leagues better than anybody else. You know, the Crafts, the Cronkies, the Wilpons, they've been around sports at the franchise ownership level for a long time in the biggest leagues and the biggest franchises in the world and you know they know how to build the the best leagues both for the players for the owners for the fans for uh you know everyone involved so that's why we love you know being uh invested in in leagues with those kind of guys and and i think that um you know esports will continue to be the game the the uh, thing that you know, the older fans love. It's the games that they love, the players they love, the personalities they love, the events they love, but just on a grander scale with, um, you know, while bringing and exposing some of these new fans that may not have ever seen or heard of esports before to the table as well. And, and um, you know, we're excited for what's to come uh, across the board as, as all of these different, uh, you know, individuals who all share the same common passion for esports come to the table and, uh, you know, build these transcendent leagues. Yeah, I definitely think that if there is a transitionary period, it's not going to last long as the premier home for Call of Duty esports will be and all the best players will be in this new league. And so even if their old favorite team might not be represented, the players still are. And it's where they they love Call of Duty esports, so they'll pick a new team. But it is definitely a bit of a source of tension. I think Optic Gaming and the fall of Optic Gaming is a great example of when the partnerships with old sports money don't necessarily go great. So Optic Gaming's bought out by Infinite Esports Entertainment, which is owned by the Texas Rangers owner, Neil Lieberman. And after just a year, Optic Gaming is forced to sell to Immortals Gaming Club. And it was there's been a whole bunch of videos coming out and Hector Rodriguez, who is a beloved figure in esports, sort of disenfranchised with Optic Gaming and how Infinite Esports Entertainment ran it. And that's been a really dominant storyline throughout the last Call of Duty season. And now we enter this next new league with Optic Gaming playing under Immortals. But it's sort of a weird source of tension, a lot of the Call of Duty community. So I'm not exactly sure how this plays out in the audience. I think over the years, it absolutely levels out, but it could be a, a problem for this first year, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, obviously I can't really comment on anything going on with the other organizations, but, um, you know, I mean, we're really excited to see what, you know, happens with the Call of Duty Global League. You know, we're incredibly bullish on the league's development and, and think that the fan support and interest is incredibly high. And, and uh, you know, we're excited to see the teams that we've invested in get out there and compete next year. Yep, so am I. The next year is going to be so important for esports in general. 
That was everything I wanted to cover with you, Joey. Was there anything I didn't ask you about that you want to say about the work FSP does, about the next year, next years of esports development, or really anything else? No, I mean, I think that's it. Thank you very much. I, I really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing it. All right. Thank you. It'll be published. We're recording this at 11 a.m. PT on Thursday, and it should be live uh, noon on Friday, noon PT on Friday. So listen in then. Joey Brander, president of First Serve Partners, investors in Overactive Media and Splice. Thank you so much, Joey. Awesome. Thank you.